This concept is not a Christian concept. It is a religious concept that is as old as religion. All the way back to Sumer, we see this concept at play. Early Christians never had the first intention of applying the idea of Trinity to their own faith. It was seven centuries after the alleged death and resurrection of Jesus hmm. that this was decided, okay? Let's just make sure we understand that. The concept of the Trinity was devised mostly to attract pagan converts. Most pagans would have felt right at home with a three-person deity, and they knew it. If you can't offer evidence for what you believe, you cannot assert that those beliefs are true. If being asked to provide evidence brings out nervousness, defensiveness, and anger, you clearly know that what you believe isn't true. And if what you believe isn't true, it can't save you. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective. And a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get unbound. He's my cherry pie. Three distinct persons, but just one inside. Taste and see, it's such a tasty lie. Sweet cherry pie. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And yeah, you're probably sitting there thinking right now, Spider, what in the hell are you on about this time? Well, it's going to become clear in just a few minutes. Tonight, we are going to take a look at the concept of the Trinity and show you how far it predates Christianity. It's vitally important that the things we cling to as truths be actually, observably, and verifiably true. So if you're a fence-sitting evangelical, I'm going to give you fair warning This one could knock you right onto the correct side of the fence, so proceed at your own risk. But before we get into that discussion, discount McMartin Preschool Hysteria, that's just plain mixed stupid, and $100 million worth of blessed assurance. It's Christians Behaving Badly, the ham-handed satanic panic redo edition. Oh, wow. What have you got for us, Shell? (laughs) Okay, well, first off in This Never Happened news... And this is directly off Hemet Meta's blog. Rachel Ham, a Republican candidate to become California's next Secretary of State, said during an interview Tuesday that she was nearly lured into Satanism during preschool. It's the latest in a series of bizarre stories, all lacking evidence, that Ham has made since announcing her candidacy. She was speaking to an anointed speaker who operates with a strong prophetic anointing. Anointed speaker is anointed. I guess. Mira Crowley on her YouTube channel describes how she rose out of a traumatic childhood. And then as an illustration, she warns others that Satan also has a plan for your life too. Also too? Also too. Wow. (laughs) She describes the following story. When I was in preschool, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, so I was normally home with her. But then she had to have surgery on her neck, and it was going to be quite the recovery process. So my grandmother offered to put me in preschool, since it would be hard for my mom to recover and also take care of me. So she took her up on that, and the preschool was a coven that was run by witches. And really, the cover that it was a preschool, but in reality, it was a coven where they were training children in satanic rituals and in all things satanic and how to be a Satanist. Literally. It was a cover coven. It was a cover coven. It was day one. It was immediate. And then I, you know, just begged not to go back. But I didn't say what was happening there, though, because they made you feel like you were complicit. So you would never tell because you think you're equally guilty. These all sound so much the same. I know. I mean, Mike Warnke, who we will be bringing up in a moment, (laughs) um, his shit sounded just like this. Yes, it all did. And it's like she goes on to describe the full gamut of her witchcraft training, sexual abuse, and covenants with the devil. Unsurprisingly, she doesn't provide the name of the preschool. Gee, I wonder why. Gee, I can't imagine why. And this isn't a one-off story from Ms. Ham. She has also conveyed a story in another forum that God had told her to run for office and that her 10-year-old son was a prophet and sees angels in the house. Yeah, I mean... 
these stories, they all sound the same. Yes. This sounds like it could have been testimony from the McMartin trial. And I yeah. wonder, I just have to wonder if this was something that she grew up with, if it's something that she remembered from her childhood or even a little bit later. I don't know how old she is. I don't yeah. know what perception she would have had of any of that back then if she was yeah. even around back then. But, um, you know, it all sounds so familiar and they all present their ideas the same way. Yeah. In this crazy alarmist hush hush, you know, I can't give too many details because sort of way. Yeah. And you can't give any details because you made them up. Yeah. That's what it boils down to. This was nothing more than a ploy to rile up a little bit more support from the right people. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this and it's like, no normal rational thinking person would ever believe that something like this is true based on the quote-unquote evidence presented and right. she shies away from giving any kind of evidence that any of this happened and has excuses for why she's not giving evidence wow. so whenever you frame something this way just understand that any rational thinking person is going to know, not think, know that you're full of shit. Yeah. So this next one looks interesting. He gets you. He so does. He gets your money too, I guess, to the that tune of too. about 100 million bucks. That's crazy. Let's hear this one. Next up, it looks like Jesus hired a new publicist to present himself as more relatable. A group of Christians funded by anonymous donors has gathered $100 million in order to state something like, Jesus, you know, he gets you. The commercials depict different story types of people coping with their lives, but it's okay because, you know, Jesus totally gets you. He's been there, man. I'm getting a real Buddy Christ vibe off of this. Yes. If anyone heard our episode or has seen the movie Dogma, you know what I'm talking about yeah. here. That was precisely what I thought it was. The first thing that jumped into my head when I read that. That oh-so-sup-dude expression on his face. Yeah. These are not ads for a particular church or denomination. It's a catch-all campaign that's meant to sell the idea of Jesus in the hopes that people will eventually want to connect with a church. But even if they don't, the hope is they'll at least be saved. Well, of course, that's the hope. Uh, but I'm sure they also hope that these people show up at a rally or a church service so they can, you know, shove a plate in front of them, too. Yeah, that's very important. Here's a quote from a Christianity Today article explaining the people behind the He Gets You campaign. The $100 million for He Gets Us comes from the Servant Christian Foundation, a nonprofit backed by a Christian donor-advised fund called The Signatary. Both declined to name the donors who helped envision and pay for He Gets Us, who wish to remain anonymous. I don't blame them. I, I don't either, honestly. Last year, the Servant Christian Foundation approached Bill McKendry, founder and chief creative officer at Haven, concerned that too many young Americans are leaving Christianity and that more people were growing hostile towards faith. I wonder why. Yeah, I wonder. Their idea? A national media blitz for Jesus at a scale that no single church could afford. Except maybe Osteen's church or something like that. Seriously. I'm guessing they could pull it off. McKendry said approaching America's American Christianity's image problem with business savvy is what Jesus would have done. Yeah, because Jesus was the great businessman. I guess. He, he had a lot of business sense. Well, the people who, uh, who finalized his story had a lot of business sense. They yes. understood marketing really, really well. But yeah. I don't know about Jesus himself. <laughs> Jesus crafted his language and his storytelling to resonate with people, he said. He told agricultural stories to farmers. He told fish stories to fishermen. Fish stories. Do they know what that means? I don't think so. Fish stories. Oh, he told fish stories, all right. Yes. This culture is immersed in media, and we're using media to reach them for Christ. Unfortunately, the problem with marketing Jesus is that most of the people who are using the product are not admirable people. They're grifters, charlatans, con men, televangelists, Christian movie directors, etc. Jesus definitely has a product defect. And it's not going to be solved with a new ad campaign. No, it's really not. It's and you know, for every one of those things that you listed there, 
I had distinct pictures of specific people. Oh, yes. That came immediately to uh-huh. mind when I read all of those. Yeah. Just consider the marketing campaign's Facebook page, which has a few basic rules when it comes to interacting in the comments section. One of them is no hate speech or bullying. It goes on to say that degrading comments about things like race, religion, culture, sexual orientation, gender, or identity will not be tolerated. The thing about that is that I'm pretty sure I've seen that in a lot of the rules in a lot of Facebook groups. So it's kind of standard. I don't think that they even looked to see what was in there. Probably not. Before they just put this page out there for the masses. It's out of character. For them to defend stuff like that. Yeah. Unfortunately, the users of the ad campaign's product routinely disregard those rules. I can think of a lot more helpful ways to use that money to actually help people. It'd sure be nice if more people felt that way. It would, wouldn't it? It And, you know, $100 million. How many people could that feed? How many people could that house? Yeah. How many people could it actually help with something besides... The whole fallacious Jesus loves you bullshit messaging. Because that's all. A hundred million dollars to say Jesus loves you, basically. Yeah. That's it. Gets you, man. He gets you. Oh, he gets you all right. He gets you right in the wallet. He gets you in every way in your life that matters. He gets you. He holds you there. He keeps you captive. And he keeps you shackled to this insane set of rules that nobody can live by. And he gets you into a place of fear so that you'll just love him a little bit more. Mm. Who is it? It's Jesus. What do you want? I want you to let me in. Why? Because I need to save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. I mean, they can't get away from that. No, they really can't. No matter how hip they try to make him look... And, you know, that was, I think, part of the messaging in Dogma yeah. was you, you can try and make God look hip, but it's not going to change the fact that he really, at the end of the day, has no power that we don't give him. Right. And that's really, I mean, $100 million to basically say that Jesus loves you. Oh, you know what? If Jesus loves me so much, can he help me get out of debt? Not me personally, but, you know, I'm talking in hypotheticals here. Can he help me get out of debt? Can he put food on my table? Can he keep my house from being foreclosed on? I mean, all sorts of things that this money can be used to do real good. And instead, they're doing it to basically gratify themselves. Yeah. I mean, that's what it looks like to me. They don't even care enough about their messaging to look at the rules that they put up on their Facebook page because I guarantee yeah. you that that was not on purpose. Yeah, no. You know, they tossed this page up there and just waited for the money to start coming in. They had no clue. I don't. I wholeheartedly believe that they had no clue that that was even in there. And now it's it's out there. And I really, you know, obviously people are noticing it. So I wonder if we're going to hear a little bit more about this and how they respond when people start holding their feet to the fire over that and saying, okay, well, if Jesus gets me, does that mean that he gets me if I'm trans? Hmm. I'd really love to know what their answer to that question is going to be. But, you know, we'll see if anything else emerges with this. I'm, I'm personally interested to see where this goes and if anybody calls them on just that part of it. Yeah. I just don't think that they have any inkling of the messaging that they're putting out there and the levels of accountability that certain people and groups could hold them to over it. How about taking some of that money and putting it towards some of our causes? Hmm. I wonder what would happen. I wonder how they would weasel out of it. Mm. We're not going to find out tonight, but we will be keeping an eye on this story. Definitely. And with that, we just want to let you know that our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash unboundpodcastnetwork. Any size donation that you can make will help us out tremendously, and it will help other people get and stay unbound. That is why we're here. That is why we do what we do. And we thank you in advance for just considering helping us in that way. But there are, of course, other ways that you can help. You can help us with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, all of the things that help podcasts grow. And first and foremost, you can help us by telling someone new about this show this week. With all of the content that we have available, I can't imagine not finding something that's going to make 
one of your evangelical friends think about a thing or two when it comes to their their religion, their faith, the way that they think. Because you know what? The joy of the Lord may be purported to be their strength, but I don't know a lot of joyful evangelicals. Mm. There aren't a lot of real happy, joyful evangelicals out there. There's a reason why they're not happy. Yeah. And there are many reasons why they're not happy. And I think that the content that we put out there can be an eye-opener to a lot of them. So if you know anyone who can benefit from this messaging, tell them about the show this week. For me, it's not about the money. It's about helping people get their lives back from this vile, nefarious religion. And that's why we're here doing what we're doing. And we appreciate any help that you give us, whether it's with your dollars or with the other things that we mentioned. Everything helps. Everything matters. And First and foremost, talk about us. Let people know that we're there. Real short and sweet on that end. We just want to let you know about uh, next week's episode. I actually have my act a little bit more together this yeah. week. I actually know what we're going to talk about next week. I figure, you know, these things kind of go in a progression in my head. So since we're talking about the Trinity this week, I thought next week it would be fun to talk about religious relics. Hmm. And not just the Shroud of Turin, which we will be talking about. But there are a bunch of things out there that people like to use as quote-unquote proofs that these things that they believe are real. Right. Well, we're once again going to expose the man behind the curtain with a lot of these things next week. Well, with some of these things next week. I mean, we could we could probably do a series on this. Oh, we'll probably. see where, where the research goes with it. But right now, I'm considering it a one-off because after a while, these things do start to get repetitive. Oh, yeah. And I think just a few examples are enough. Mm -hmm. to make the point clear that what's out there as proof in the form of a religious relic isn't proof. And we're going to show you why it isn't proof in next week's episode. For right now, let's dive right into this conversation. I mean, I know people are wondering what in the hell that opening was about. You're about to find out. Just sit tight. to my teen years and the oohs and ahs they managed to elicit from us over this subject, I don't know whether to laugh or lose my shit. One of my counselors at Word of Life tried to tell me that the Trinity was a scientific concept that can be observed throughout nature. He told me all chemical elements exist in three forms, solid, liquid, and gas. Water is still water, whether it's water, steam, or ice, but each of these things have different purposes and they can be used toward different ends. And he made the point that God is still God, whether he chooses to come to us as Father, Son, or Spirit. And each of those members of the Godhead have specific purposes and things they do, just like ice, water, and steam. It was a mind-blowing concept at the time, for sure. But as I got a little older, it occurred to me that unless the point here is that God is a chemical element... The argument doesn't fly. Mm -hmm. And if I'm created in God's image, why can't I choose my form if any of that is even remotely true? Why can't I be me now, a puddle in a bucket later, and a misty non-corporeal spirit when it suits me? You know, there are so many holes in their narrative and the way that they explain things. The craziest one that I remember, mm -hmm. and you can find this on YouTube, is Mike Warnke's Contemplating Cherry Pie. There it is. To paraphrase, he says that if you cut a cherry pie that's, quote, made right into three equal slices, you can see three distinct pieces, but underneath all the filling flows together still is just one thing. I think about that and I think to myself, Mike, add a little cornstarch and your entire argument flies south for the winner. <laughs> it just does. Yeah. Whether it's solid, liquid, gas, or a tasty pastry, the arguments out there for why the Trinity is a real concept are very shallow at best. Oddly enough, I found a really good primer on this subject in a blog post on UCG.org. That's the United Church of God folks, and they present this in a very neutral sort of way. They lay the foundation with a quote from a book called Old Truths in a New Light by Marie Sinclair, Countess of Caithness. And it says, quote, it is generally, although erroneously supposed, that the doctrine of the Trinity is of Christian origin. Nearly every nation of antiquity possessed a similar doctrine. St. Jerome, one of the first Catholic theologians, even stated that, quote, all the ancient nations believed in the Trinity. Well, they believed in trinities, not the Trinity. They couldn't believe in the Trinity as defined by any Christian church. The concept of trinities and triple deities dates back to the literal beginnings of human history. 
It is believed by a majority of anthropologists that documented human history begins with Sumer, and Sumerian mythology clearly defines the Trinity as a religious concept. According to the LaRousse Encyclopedia of Mythology, the Sumerians believed that, quote, the universe was divided into three regions, each of which became the domain of a god. Anu's share was the sky, the earth was given to Enlil, and Ea became the ruler of the waters. Together, they constituted the triad of the, Greek, of the great gods, not the Greek gods, of the great gods. Western pagan traditions also use a variety of symbols to convey the concept of three. Three is a power number, and it shows up a lot in many aspects of paganism and witchcraft. Triangles, triketras, and triskels are very common examples. These are all symbols that you can actually look up what they look like. I think most people know what a triketra is. Yeah. The others, you know, you may need to look up, but they're all going to be familiar. I guarantee you've seen these before. Druidic traditions also recognize the land, sky, and sea concept with a god or multiple gods having dominion over each. This concept later evolved into the four quarters or four elements, adding fire as a fourth elemental. But the oldest roots of this concept do in fact involve three deities or a single deity with three distinct attributes or persons. And I'll get into that concept in greater detail in just a few minutes. The ancient Babylonians also recognized the concept of the Trinity. Thomas Dennis Rock, in his book, The Mystical Woman and the Cities of the Nations, said, quote, The ancient Babylonians recognized the doctrine of a Trinity, or three persons in one God, as appears from a composite God with three heads forming part of their mythology, and the use of the equilateral triangle also as an emblem of such Trinity in unity. Even Hindu mythology acknowledges Trinity and Trinity imagery as part of their religious practice. In fact, the Puranas, a 3,000-year-old Hindu holy book, contains the following passage. Quote, O ye three lords, know that I recognize only one God. Inform me, therefore, which of you is the true divinity, that I may address to him alone my adorations. The three gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, becoming manifest to him, replied, Learn, O devotee, that there is no real distinction between us. What to you appears such is only the semblance. The single being appears under three forms by the acts of creation, preservation, and destruction, but he is one. That's Hinduism, way older than Christianity. Hence, the triangle was adopted by all the ancient nations as a symbol of the deity. Three was considered among all the pagan nations as the chief of the mystical numbers because, as Aristotle remarks, it contains within itself a beginning, a middle, and an end. Hence, we find it designating some of the attributes of almost all the pagan gods. The ancient Greeks also had their take on this. In his book, Paganism in Our Christianity, Arthur Weigel tells us, quote, In the 4th century BC, Aristotle wrote, all things are three, and thrice is all, and let us use this number in the worship of the gods. For, as the Pythagoreans say, everything and all things are bounded by threes. For the end, the middle, and the beginning have this number in everything, and these compose the number of the Trinity. In the ancient Egyptian text, the hymn to Amun, we are told that no god came into being before him, and that all gods are three, Amun, Ra, and Ta, and there is no second to them. Hidden is his name as Amun. He is Ra in face, and his body is Ta. This is a statement of Trinity. The three chief gods of Egypt subsumed into one of them, Amun. Clearly, the concept of organic unity within plurality got an extraordinary boost with this formulation. Theologically, in a crude form, it came strikingly close to the later Christian form of plural Trinitarian monotheism. That's a quote from Simpson... Nehovitz from his book, Egypt, Trunk of the Tree, Volume 2. So yes, the ancient Egyptians made a practice of arranging their deities into trinities. You have Osiris, Isis, and Horus. You have Amun, Mut, and Khonsu. Then you have Num, Satis, or Satis, and Anukis. And these are just a few examples. Many other cultures had their own divine trinities too. In Greece, Zeus, Poseidon, and Adonis made up a trinity. This wasn't even the only trinity that had Zeus in it. Zeus was part of other trinities in Greek mythology. It's just crazy. In Phoenicia, it was Ulomus, Eleusaris, and Elion. 
In Roman mythology, it was Jupiter, Neptune, and Pluto that formed a trinity. In Norse mythology, we read of the trinity of Woden, Thor, and Frigo or Frico. So this concept is not a Christian concept. It is a religious concept that is as old as religion. All the way back to Sumer, we see this concept at play. This is a concept that is a staple of pagan pantheons. I'm going to talk about the two that I had the most quote-unquote experience with. These were the two goddesses that were really my go-tos. I considered Hecate to be one of my matrons, but I also kind of held her on the same level with the Celtic god Briad, or Brigid, or Bridget, whichever pronunciation floats your boat the best. Hecate was considered to be the queen of all witches, and she existed in triple form as maiden, mother, and crone, as did a lot of other goddesses. Also, her symbol conveys the concept of three. If you want to Google the Strophilos or Hecate's wheel, you'll notice it's basically a three-pronged wheel that represents each attribute of her being, maiden, mother, and crone. And with all due respect, she was a trinity. And one of the things that drew me to her was that she actually had these three distinct forms because it was familiar. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Poet, Healer, Smith, very different and diverse attributes. So the evangelical in me gravitated toward her like immediately. Right. So that's enough of Spider's Wiccan history. There are so many examples of both gods and goddesses and combinations of both often involving parental figures and their children. I found that really, really interesting. Mm. It's usually two parents and a kid. Yeah. That's where a lot of these, and it's not just goddesses. You've got trinities of just gods. You've got trinities that involve gods and goddesses. It's all very intricate. And, you know, a lot of thought went into this stuff. You, you have to, at least on an academic and intellectual level, you have to admire the level of thought that went into this. And also what a lot of this teaches us about human nature. If you want the truth about what the Bible was supposed to be able to accomplish, it was supposed to be something that taught us about ourselves. Unfortunately, the people who wrote it were kind of shitty people. Yeah. So it taught us pretty shitty things about ourselves. But I think that some of the older traditions, a lot of the older pagan traditions, had more positivity to them. They yeah. had more to say about the good aspects of humanity and how you could be a better person. Another thing that really drew me to Wicca back in the day. So the entire concept of Trinity differs between Christianity and basically anything else. Yeah. Um, it has a much, much more self-serving aspect to it in yeah. Christianity. And also one that was very, very manufactured over time. We'll get into a little bit more of that in just a minute too. So I just want to share a tiny sample of the examples that I found of the various trinities that have been part of mythologies over time. Fandom.com, I love as a resource. It's a really, really cool site. And the religion end of it is particularly interesting. I'm pretty sure that we've cited them at least once before. And I want to take a look just at a couple of these things right now. And there's this long ass list here. But to start out with, they give a decent definition of a triple deity. They say a triple deity is a deity associated with the number three. Such deities are common throughout world mythology. The number three has a long history of mythical associations. Carl Jung considered the arrangement of deities into triplets an archetype in the history of religion. I'm not going to get into all of the various definitions here. The link is in the show notes. I do recommend having a look at this page. It's very, very cool. But we talked already about triple goddesses. I'm going to page down a little bit here and go directly to their list of triple deities and just read off a few, just so that you get the idea of how far-reaching this concept is. The classical Greek Olympic triad of, here we go again, Zeus, Zeus, Athena, and Apollo. So you see he has more than one trinity that he's associated with. You've got the Delian chief triad of Leto, Artemis, and Apollo. The Olympian uh, demagogic triad in Platonic philosophy made up of Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. That's interesting right there. I'm going to uh, 
scroll down a little bit here. The Hellenistic Egypt triad of Isis, Serapis, and Harpocrates. So before I get more tongue-tied, we're just going to go ahead and move on. You get the idea. There's a lot. And that is a tiny sampling of what you're going to find on that page. So again, I definitely recommend looking at it. It's religion.bandom.com. It is in the show notes, and um, it's it's a worthy read. And you know what? I have fun remembering some of this stuff, mm-hmm. especially the things that are more familiar to me and some of the ways that I approached some of it. It's fun to remember. There's part of me that really just doesn't feel like the Wicca years were anywhere near as pointless and useless as yeah. as my years in evangelicalism. I feel like I learned a lot about myself through that process. And I think I've said it before. I learned so much about myself that I realized that all of this was coming from myself. Yeah. So I didn't need the gods anymore. But it was good to have that experience. So I guess when Briad was done, she had forged me into an atheist. <laughs> there and you go. she lives on in my head as a memory of a good time in my life. Yeah. I mean, religion is religion is religion. I've said it before. Not all religions are created equal, and they don't all have the same intent. That was what I got. I got atheism out of paganism. And uh, so it's all good. So now let's turn the spotlight on to Christianity. Arthur Weigel also makes a valid point that brings things much closer to home. And what he has to say here might surprise some of you. He says, quote, It must not be forgotten that Jesus Christ never mentioned such a phenomenon a.k.a. the Trinity, and nowhere in the New Testament does the word Trinity even appear. The idea was only adopted by the church 300 years after the death of our Lord, and the origin of the conception is entirely pagan. And in case you didn't catch it by what he said, this guy is a Christian, and he gets this. Mm -hmm. That's right, folks. The concept of the Trinity is 100% extra-biblical. And that's a buzzword in evangelical circles. We didn't like things that were extra biblical, Mm. but we believed in a lot of them because we were led to believe that a lot of this stuff was actually there. But the concept of the Trinity is extra biblical. And yes, the New Testament does identify three distinct persons that are all related in terms of their origins, but Jesus never refers to himself as a member of a trinity. The trinity is never seen together, and we're never given an example of their interactions, something that you do see in the other mythologies. You see these three deities or three manifestations of a deity interacting with each other and interacting with people. You do not see this in the Bible. No, nope. You don't see it anywhere. I challenge anyone to tell me different. And Genesis 126 does have one of those anomalous lines wherein Yahweh says, let us make man in our image. But that proves nothing. If the Trinity existed in Genesis, where were the Son and the Holy Spirit? Yahweh had no documented co-conspirators in the Old Testament, none. Just that little anomaly of language that kind of blows the doors off any concept of monotheism. And when I look at the related biblical passages, I see that God fathered Jesus and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit after his post-resurrection departure. Now, I'm speaking in purely literary terms. This is according to New Testament narrative, and that's all it is. The assertion that all three of these manifestations are actually all the same deity goes back to what we see in Deuteronomy 6.4 and is repeated by Jesus in Mark 12.29. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. But again, if this was a thing from the beginning, why in 39 books is the subject never addressed? It's a question worth pondering. Mm -hmm. The concept was definitely in place, but we never see... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit referred to as the Trinity. In fact, we never hear the Holy Spirit referred to as God at all. Jesus made vague, veiled references to the notion that he might be God, but there's nothing in there that says the Holy Spirit was himself or itself God. So the question that weighs on my mind is, did the New Testament writers present the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this way on purpose? Well, who knows? I wasn't there when it was written. The other problem there is that we still don't have any original documents, so who knows what got added over time. The Trinity concept could have come later, 
or it could have been the result of biased redaction by people who had their own agendas and convictions and probably thought in a more pagan way right. than, uh, than people realize they did. But it was the existence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that was in part responsible for the filioque debate that followed the Council of Nicaea. So filioque, I'll qualify that term and tell you what it means in a couple of minutes. But this was a big thing in some of our classes in college, oh, yeah. too. And it's worth noting that the original Nicene Creed did not contain the word. So what is this whole filioque thing about? Early Christians never had the first intention of applying the idea of Trinity to their own faith. There was God the Father and Jesus his Son, and this rather vague concept called the Holy Spirit, who itself is described as having multiple functions and attributes itself. But before the Council of Nicaea and the controversies over the concept that followed, there was really no thought of all three being an actual trinity. The very pagan concept of trinity could only be applied to Christian doctrine by inserting language that identified the Holy Spirit, the required third person, co-equal status with the other two. This is from the Wikipedia on the whole filioque yeah. debate. The idea of the spirit being co-equal with God was not generally recognized until the second half of the 4th century AD. In the year 381, the Council of Constantinople added to the earlier Nicene Creed a description of the Holy Spirit as the Lord and giver of life who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and Son together is worshipped and glorified. But that still left a hole in the right. narrative. This is where the ship started being steered toward the concept of one God, three parts. It didn't start with Jesus or any New Testament writer. In the 7th century, the concept was solidified further when many Christian sects began using the term who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and that is where filioque comes in. It adds that and the Son part to it right. to describe the person of the Holy Spirit. So that's where they closed the circle, basically. It wasn't just the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and being separate from the Son. No. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. So now we've got our Trinity. It was seven centuries after the alleged death and resurrection of Jesus mm. that this was decided. Okay? Let's just make sure we understand that. And this quick quote from worldhistory.org about the Trinity says, Several of the Eastern churches claimed that this diminished the power of the Spirit. Ultimately, the debate over this clause and other matters brought about the separation of the Eastern Orthodox churches from the Western Latin churches in the year 1054. Yeah, I remember doing a paper in college for one of my theology classes on the filioque controversy. But with the way we were all thinking at the time, I didn't think of this as being an argument about the Trinity. I thought it was a simple argument about wording and theology. Well, yeah. I it mean, was, that, was, that was the way yeah, we were, we're all supposed like, to think about it. Oh, well, you know, they're just like... They're trying to explain this properly. Yeah. And our professor at the time, who I will only refer to as BRM, gave a lot of detail on this. Yes. So he did present that part of it. I remember distinctly. But the thing that I remember most about that whole unit that we did on this subject was just hearing the word filioque over and over and over and over again. And yeah, because we were already in the mindset of thinking about the Trinity as being the true interpretation of who God is. Right. The way that they spun it at the time was that we were supposed to look at this as confirmation of what we believed because the Holy Spirit illuminated these people to who he was. Right. That was the way that it was set out in front of us back then. I've made the joke many, many times over that the, uh, the Council of Constantinople, where this whole filioque thing actually began, not really the Council of Nicaea, it started with the Council of Constantinople, where the question of filioque became a thing. So I've made the joke many times that this was a bunch of dead old men that got together um, trying to agree on this one particular thing, walking around and asking each other, you filioque about this? <laughs> I filioque about it. Yeah. You filioque about it? And then and then everybody voted on it, and everyone was happy, and they were all filioque. Um, wow. <laughs> that was one of the things that ran through my head as I sat at one of those tiny desks yeah. In, in that class and listen to our professor just ramble on filioque after filioque after filioque. So once again, let's just make sure that we understand this. The Bible never ties the Trinity together in the way that filioque made it. 
like pretty much everything about this religion, eventually someone just decided that it was going to be a thing and it became a thing. But like many things the Catholic Church did in the Middle Ages, the concept of the Trinity was devised mostly to attract pagan converts. Most pagans would have felt right at home with a three-person deity and they knew it. I don't think that I even need to go into vivid detail about all the things that the Catholics did to appeal to the pagans and continue to do to this day, mm -hmm. not so much to appeal to pagans, but because it's tradition. And we can observe right. what the history of the church has morphed into in terms of its liturgy. And not a whole hell of a lot has changed. Now, in my never-ending attempt to give these people equal time and failing miserably owing to the sheer baselessness of any argument that they make about anything. I actually clicked on an article that purports to offer proof that the Trinity is not pagan in its origin. This is a site called Bible.ca. It looks like it was made with GeoCities circa 1996, and that was my first impression of it. My second was, my, but there are a lot of exclamation points around here. I yeah. swear, just reading this felt like I was reading the rantings of an unruly toddler. I'm literally only giving this attention as a means of injecting a little comic relief. So, okay, here goes. Bring up the page, and oh my god, the uh, the exclamation points abound. Yes. Um, so the first point that they make here is that Christians did not borrow Trinity from the pagans, exclamation point. Trinity is truth, exclamation point. And here are some of their reasons. Reason number one, quoting themselves as their expert, exclamation point. Sources, authorities, and quote, historical experts quoted by anti-Trinitarians are invalid. Why? Because they say so. And because they disagree with them. That's it. Yeah. I can hear somebody saying these things in such a wise-ass tone. Oh, yeah. Kind of like calling yourself a witness to your own trial. Um, I'm sorry. That's something that happens all the time. <laughs> People are called as witnesses in their own trial all the time. Can we put your God on the stand? Can we get him to, uh, to explain a few things? Because that is actually a thing that happens. Um, reason number two, quoting pagans, atheists, and modernists. Oh, no. So... Yeah, no, you can't give equal time to any of those people, can you? Mm -mm. Reason number three, misquoting and misrepresenting Trinitarians. Um, they dishonestly misrepresent Trinitarian sources through, quote, selective quoting to make it appear that the source is teaching the opposite to what the source actually believes. Well, yes, because we're going to zero in on quotes that qualify what we think and lend at least a degree of proof to what we think. So yes, we are going to selectively quote the things that relate directly to this thing. But I think that any skeptic will tell you that you have to hear both sides, which is most of the reason why I clicked on this in the first place. So we all do this. And it's not just confirmation bias. Yeah. It's not just trying to hide the quote unquote truth of anything. It's a matter of these are the bits of information that go toward the pros and cons of our argument. So that's something that we do. But that doesn't mean that, we're, that we are misquoting or misrepresenting anything. If I read a direct quote, it was said. So how is that misquoting or misrepresenting? If it's out there for consumption, then why can't I quote it? Why can't I use that as proof for or against any argument? Reason number four, incomplete research and incompetent conclusions, exclamation point. <laughs> Anti-Trinitarians ignore the larger picture, the data paints, oh. exclamation point. Wow. In collecting data on ancient paganism and idolatry, there are examples, uh, examples of twinities, twinities, <laughs> trinities, quadites, and quintities, quintities. Oh my God. What a mouthful that is. Yeah. I like this one exclamation in... Parentheses. It is rank polytheism. Okay. So and, dramatic. And and your point is, because <laughs> I'm sorry, you you made your own religion polytheistic with this whole Father, Son, and Holy Spirit BS. Yeah. Oh my God. I I I wonder. You know, if I had the time, I would have sat here and counted the exclamation points. There are so many. There are so many. Okay. Reason number five: the devil is a counterfeiter. So. I guess the point here is, is Matthew 13, the parable of the tear in, oh, in Matthew 13, in the parable of the tares, the devil sows, quote, wild wheat to counterfeit the true wheat, 
We are not dismissing the possibility that some cultures may have had a triune Trinity God. If there's any real Trinity-type God among paganism, it should be remembered that the real demons are involved in the origin of false doctrine and worship. Wow. Oh, my God. This hurts my brain. It does. It totally does. Reason number six, Trinity doctrine is easy to prove from Scripture. Okay, you can't prove anything from Scripture. Okay, oh. you cannot prove anything from a work of fiction. If that was true, then I should be able to hop a train to Hogwarts at any time I want to. Okay? Because I have seven volumes of proof that there is a school for underage wizards somewhere in Scotland. So if I can take a book, any book I want, and glean proof from it, then when do I get to go to Hogwarts? I'd love to see the place. But I'm a muggle, so I can't. Mm. She explains that away in the books really, really well. Mm. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And as I keep scrolling, and it, it's it's starting to hurt my eyes with some of the things they have on here. And the sheer lack of understanding of anything that they post, anything that they use as examples. This site and this page is such a hot mess. In my mind, it's a very good visual interpretation of how evangelicals think Ugh. i wouldn't be a bit surprised if that thing has been out there since like the mid to late 90s yeah, and it just was, never um never updated it was very nostalgic someone's paying for that domain every single, single year for year. that to, yeah. to for that to stay out there and you know the thing about everything on that page is that it all sounds way more batshit on the heels of a practical reasoned discussion on the subject doesn't it Think about it. Those of you who are out there on the fence, think about that. Think about the way that we're presenting our argument and the crazy ham-handed way that they're presenting theirs. The whole thing reeks of desperation. Admit I'm right. Admit I'm right. You know what I mean? <laughs> to me, that page just encapsulates well the desperation and ignorance that proceeds from evangelical thought. These people are so desperate to be right. They're willing to look like fools making arguments that are so easy to overturn. It's almost embarrassing just reading them out loud. The way that they assert their point of view as fact and practically throw a tantrum in their attempt to be convincing. And as we close things out tonight, this is what I want you thinking about. The ridiculousness of the way that these people organize their arguments and their obvious fear of the real truth. Keep in mind that if something isn't factual, it also isn't true. If you can't offer evidence for what you believe, you cannot assert that those beliefs are true. If being asked to provide evidence brings out nervousness, defensiveness, and anger, you clearly know that what you believe isn't true. And if what you believe isn't true, it can't save you. After all, even Jesus said that it's the truth that sets us free. So here are a few facts that we can observe and demonstrate. The concept of trinities is way older than Christianity. The Bible never uses the word trinity or any related word or phrase. Most early Christians didn't view Jesus as part of a trinity. The concept of a trinity didn't even crop up around Jesus for more than 300 years, and the whole filioque thing took even longer to solidify. The existence of the trinity was, again, decided with the insertion of a phrase into the Nicene Creed. The concept of the Christian trinity was clarified with the settlement of the filioque argument and that final redaction of who proceeds from the Father and the Son, as it appears in the Creed, is the foundation of all doctrines of the Christian Trinity. Not the Bible, not the words of God or Jesus, but a stamp of approval from a group of people who decided, there's that word again, bookmark that word, it is so important, who decided it was true largely by majority vote. Not by inspiration, not by illumination, by a vote. And this, again, is what you're staking your eternity on the opinions of a bunch of self-pious dead dudes. See, I'm not in the do-your-own-research camp when it comes to helping people get their lives back. I'm happy to do it for you. But that being said, I do hope you'll look at the links in the show notes and maybe look a little beyond them to corroborate what I'm saying. And the more you dig, the more absurdity you're going to uncover. The more you're going to see just how little of what you believe 
actually originates with your God and how much of it has much more to do with infighting among the ranks of so-called scholars and theologians all vying to have their opinions adopted over the other guys. The Great Schism was a response to the filioque argument. Eastern and Western traditions split over it, and Eastern and Western traditions split over it, and each went back to their neutral corners convinced that they were right. So let me ask you, if God is real, why doesn't he simply clarify things so we know who he is and how he feels about all this? If the Christian Trinity is truly unique and not a construct of much older concepts, why is there so much overwhelming evidence to the contrary? Why do cultures that are literal millennia older than Christianity profess things like triple goddesses and trinities within their pantheons? These are questions that are worth pondering, although I will warn you, the wider you make your search for the truth, the more lies you're going to uncover, and those lies are the things that will unravel your faith. You can either commit to seeking the truth wherever it leads, or you can go on nodding your head to the likes of the author of that idiotic blog post and drift off into the great nothing blissfully unaware of how badly you've been duped. I choose truth. I choose reality. I choose to think rationally and hear arguments before making a decision. It's good policy. But more, it keeps us on a path to getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.